Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Nelson Wiseman about his history of politics and public affairs in Canada in the 1950s. Nelson Wiseman is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. He is also the author of a number of political histories, including a book on the evolution of Canadian political parties. Today, we are going to talk to him about his new book, 1950s Canada, Politics and Public Affairs, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. What motivated you to write this political history of the 1950s, given that, as you admit in the very introduction of the book, that the decade of the 1950s really doesn't represent a turning point in either Canadian or world history? Well, I was, uh, during my years uh, teaching, researching, I, I made great use of two series of books. One was called the Canadian Annual Review of Public Affairs, which came out from the basically the turn of the 20th century until well into the late 30s. And then another book, which followed up on it, but much more academic or written by academics with more or less the same title, Canadian Annual Review of Politics and Public Affairs which was initiated by a professor at the University of Toronto, history professor John Saywell. That series ran until 2009. And when I was doing research on various topics over the years, I found both those sources invaluable. For example, if I wanted to get a synopsis of the King-Bing affair, I went to that year and I found the exchange of letters they had, which I hadn't seen. If I wanted to know about the rudimentary old age pensions that were introduced in the 20s, I went there and I got at parts of the debates that went on. And I thought, you know, it's a pity we don't have anything on the 1950s. But I couldn't do a book on each year. So I decided to do a chapter on each year. And I don't think you'll find any more bland titles for chapters than my chapter two, which is titled 1950. Chapter three is titled 1951 and so on. And so I should explain, it's not a book so much driven by a thesis or a grand theoretical framework, or it poses questions. What I'm trying to do is provide a reference. So if people are looking at a broader topic, let's say Indigenous affairs or women, hey, you're going to get some context here because I end up referring to some of those things. So that was my objective. It's the kind of book I don't expect people to read from cover to cover. I expect you to dip into it. Oh, well, that's interesting. Oh, look at how that unfolded. But after having done the book, then I realized, you know what? I actually got a sense of trends and patterns that developed over those 10 years. And you might want to ask, why study a decade? After all, 1955 to 1964 is also a decade. But we're naturally attracted to round numbers. Unless we talk about the 60s, we talk about the, the 40s, we talk about the 80s. 
okay, I'm dealing with the 50s. That's right. And so it fills this enormous gap because I, too, have used the Canadian Annual Review, particularly the latter series. And hopefully you can do the 1940s someday to fill in that that particular gap and as well. But I want you to tell us the structure of each chapter. There are five subject topics in each. Why you organize the book in this particular way? Well, you know, I, first, you want to break things up to give the reader a break from one subject to the next. So the first section is sort of general. Things that caught my eye about that year that may not deal with politics directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like in 1957, Sputnik went up on the same day that uh, Ford introduced Edsel. Things outside of the realm uh, narrowly of politics. So I might talk about uh, the economic conditions. I might talk about immigration. I might talk about something related to women or expanding the franchise, although that's more of a political topic. And then I uh, the next section was uh, called federal politics. I wanted to give people a sense of what happened in Parliament that year, uh, what the media were saying, what what uh, uh, speeches uh, leading politicians were uh, were making, what the issues were that they identified, and then I thought I have a section on intergovernmental relations uh, because those are very important. We probably have the most decentralized federal system in the world. There are about two dozen federal systems. And I thought, uh, I think that's important. What happened? And lo and behold, I I recognize that a lot of the issues of today in intergovernmental affairs and relations, you can connect to developments in the 50s. Then there's a section on the provinces. Uh, This one was tougher to handle uh, because I did large part of the book during the pandemic. And uh, I didn't have access to a lot of regional newspapers, but I found the Globe and Mail, Canada's newspaper of record, was good. And as the uh, decade wore on, they had regional correspondence, which gave me a good flavor of what was going on. And I also did, uh, I could access some of the Southern papers. Uh, And then lastly, I wanted to look at Canada and the world. And here we see distinct trends of the evolution of uh, Canada's role in the world and Canada's relations with other countries and how other countries perceive Canada. So what were some of the common features that marked the 1950s from a political or public policy lens compared to decades before or after? In other words, what set, if anything, the 1950s apart? from other decades? Well, in terms of Canadian history, I would say it was exceptionally tranquil in terms of the social environment. Uh, You know, you didn't have the cataclysmic affair of the Second World War. You didn't have the devastation of the Depression in the 30s. You didn't have the counterculture of the 60s. You didn't have the separatist threat of the 70s or the constitutional crises that came with Meech Lake and Charlottetown in the late 80s and 90s. Okay, so what did we get in the 50s? Well, it was sort of, it now appears, relatively sleepy. However, dramatic things happened. For example, you know, we have debates today about equalization payments. Hey, those started in the 1950s. Oh, we have debates today about Medicare. 
oh, isn't it interesting that the foundation for that, as you very well know, was the hospital insurance legislation of the nineteen of the nineteen fifties. Today, indigenous uh, issues are front and center. Well, in the nineteen fifties, we have debates over whether of uh, the franchise should be expanded to indigenous peoples. We have reports of residential schools and what's going on in those schools. How about the role of women? And and we see that in 1950, there wasn't a single woman in the House of Commons. And by 1958, by 1957 indeed, we've got a woman who's the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. So there are, are changes. Look, in 1950, women who were married couldn't work in the federal civil service. If they got married, they got dismissed. If they got pregnant, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, those were grounds to let women go in jobs. Then in 1955, oh, there's a shortage of clerical workers. Women are permitted in. Women are also now can rejoin the military service, although in, in, in selected areas. So there were changes going on. Right. And just Given the opportunity that you had to spend so much time these past couple of years reviewing the 1950s, what were some of the trends or patterns that you noticed uh, by the end of this project? And uh, how did the Canada of 1950 compare to the Canada of 1959? What what had changed? Well, one thing that came through is um, the growing role of the non-English, non-French. Uh, you know, when 1950 started, we had never had a uh, a cabinet minister of uh, of uh, Slavic origins. You know, and then we got Michael Starr, who became a minister of uh, of labor. We'd never had a, a female cabinet minister, and as I mentioned, we got Ellen Faircloth. When the 1950s started, Canada was one of the uh, big four military powers. Canada, along with France, Britain, and the United States, was uh, negotiating with the Soviets. And indeed, at the United Nations, Canada was the lead country negotiating with the Soviets over nuclear weapons. By the end of the 1950s, Canada was a lot richer uh, as a country. People were living longer. Uh, they were eating healthier foods. Uh, the pathologies of uh, crime and, and poverty had been reduced. But Canada was now being towered over by other countries. You know, its GDP was equal to Italy's. And uh, Germany, with which Canada was still technically at war in 1950, wow, its economy way eclipsed Canada's. And indeed, it's interesting to see the relationship to Germany. When 1950 started, not only did Canada not still have a peace treaty with um, Germany, Canada was at war at the time. It had declared, you know, supporting the UN mission in Korea, although the forces couldn't get to Korea until 1951 because we were dependent on American transport. By 1959, concerns about communism, nuclear disaster had abated somewhat, not completely, we had the defund bunker built outside of Ottawa in CARP, but uh, uh, fewer people thought that war was imminent. Canada and the West had sort of worked out a modus vivendi with the Soviet bloc. 
And we had essentially moved, I would say, from being a warfare state at the beginning of the 50s into an era of becoming a welfare state. And that's because the Canadian economy boomed in the 50s. Canada was one of the very few countries in the world that was running, uh, at the beginning of the 50s, running a surplus. And I think in every year, in no other decade, has Canada run as many surpluses every single year. And a lot of the provinces were as well. In intergovernmental affairs, what happened is the, the revenues of the provinces exceeded the percentage increase was greater than the percentage increase in revenues for the federal government. So I, I think provinces really came into their own in the 60s with the beginnings of what we could call province building. But the, the foundation is being laid in the 50s. And, and, and if we look at the Charter of Rights, the Diefenbaker Bill of Rights, which was uh, eclipsed by the Charter, was actually introduced in 1959, came into effect in 1960. So there was growing concern about human rights in the 50s. The other thing I would say is a parliamentary debate, let's say it was, I don't know if I want to use the word genteel, but much more civil and uh, I would say proper, but then maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy, than it has become. Uh, it, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, TV revolutionized political campaigning in Canada. But a very big thing, if you're focused on politics of the 1950s, is that the party system was revolutionized in Canada. And not just in terms of uh, the numbers of parties, but also how they acted, how MPs behaved, and also the base of support for parties. In 1950, there were four parties in parliament and eight independents. By 19, by the end of the 50s, there were only three parties in parliament. And one, you know, the CCF had fewer than 10 seats. And there were no independents. In the 1950s, uh, there were differences in cabinet, which you could find out about in the media, and there were and parties didn't vote on strict party lines all the time. You know there was an element to party discipline, but uh, you had differences. Uh, you know the, the liberal cabinet ministers debated on whether to have an expansionary budget or not as a recession hit in 1957. The CCF was divided on uh, whether Germany should be admitted to NATO. Some voted in favor, some voted against, some abstained. So um, cabinet ministers differed over whether a strike by CBC French language producers in Quebec, uh, an Anglophone minister, George Nolan, thought it was illegal. A Francophone minister thought the strike was perfectly legal. The minister of labor weighed in and said, oh, I don't have an opinion on its legality. Well, that's sort of unheard of today. <laughs> Well, looking at political parties and, uh, again, comparing 1950 to the end of the decade, 1959, what changed in terms of the political ideology of the three main federal parties, the Liberals, the Progressive Conservatives, and the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF? 
actually, I don't think their uh, ideological orientations really changed. The, the main difference, I would say, is the liberals, you know, which uh, styled themselves as a middle-of-the-road party, started edging more and more and more toward the welfare side, the left side. But I should say, those debates, yeah, that was a live debate uh, within the Liberal Party, or the hierarchy of the Liberal Party, about introducing more welfare measures. So there was more of a, what I would call a blue streak in the Liberal Party than it sort of appears today. The biggest change, I would say, is not in their ideological outlook or policies. I mean, the CCF uh, favored more public ownership at the beginning of the 50s and, and more at the end of the 50s. The conservatives were for smaller government and lower taxes at the beginning of the 50s and at the end of the 50s, just as they are today. The, the big difference was this, in my opinion. Until the late 50s, the base of support for the Liberal Party, in addition to Quebec, is it was a significant party in Western Canada and on farms in Ontario. What the Diefenbaker elections of 1957 and 1958 did, and Diefenbaker's, uh, a rally for Diefenbaker posters for him are on the cover of the book, is that they reoriented the base of support for the parties. The West, which had elected very few conservatives, became the base of the conservative party. And the cities, like Toronto, which had been known as Tory Toronto, the devastating defeat of the Liberals in 1958 led them, although this came to fruition in the 60s, to reorient themselves to becoming more of an urban-based party. And one of the leaders in that, the leader, I would say, was Walter Gordon, who was a pivotal figure in the 50s because he headed a royal commission on Canada's economic prospects. He saw the trends, which he projected in his commission, that Canada was increasingly going to be tied to an urban industrialized economy. And also, on the other hand, he was concerned about American economic domination of the economy. Most Canadians hadn't been, but he laid the groundwork for things like the task force on, on foreign ownership or the Watkins report in the 60s, the Foreign Investment Review Act in the, in the 70s. So you had this big shift where the Conservative Party had essentially been the party of Ontario. It, it elected more MPs in Ontario uh, between the 1935 and 1957 elections than in all the rest of the country combined. But now we don't think of the, the Conservative Party as the party of Ontario. It's the Liberals who've done very well in Ontario, and Ontario's most ur- is a very urban province. The, it's the Conservatives of the Party of the West. And, and for those that would argue that the Conservatives became much more progressive under the leadership of John Diefenbaker, you don't see a major shift in the political ideology, nor do you agree with those that uh, would argue that the CCF moved more to the uh, centre from the left in their political ideology during the 1950s. Uh, no, the CCF definitely did move more to the center. And evidence of that was something called the Winnipeg Declaration, in which they carved out a space for private business, the smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses, uh, which you didn't see in the Regina Manifesto. And that's because context is so important. It, you know, the Regina Manifesto comes out in the midst 
of the Dust Bowl, 1933. And Canada is still a much more agrarian society. The Winnipeg uh, Declaration comes out in 1956 when you've got uh, a booming economy and where the recession and depression that some CCFers were predicting in the late 40s because they said, oh, the economy had been boosted by the war economy. That, you know, had, once you get out of the war, we may have the same thing as we had after the First World War. We'll have returning soldiers, we won't have jobs, then we won't have housing. But actually, the economy exploded in the 50s. It was an era of great growth. And so now, the analysis the CCF had, it didn't quite fit the facts on the ground. As for the conservatives, did Diefenbaker swing the party to the left? Well, I would say this. Although he came into power in 1957, and a recession had entered, he, uh, he, uh, he essentially extended some of the things that the liberals had done. For example, the hospitalization bill had been passed before he came to power, and it required that uh, six provinces sign on with at least 50% of the population. He comes into power and says, no, no, you don't even need six provinces. You don't need 50%. He increases... Uh, pensions for the disabled, for the old age. He gives out grants to Atlantic Canada, special grants to farmers, because federal revenues are growing. And despite the fact that there's a light recession on, things look good. However, the longer you get into the Diefenbaker period, you know, the tougher it gets for him, but for other reasons. He alienates Quebec and so on. But that's the story of the 1960s. Right. Going back to the 1958 election when Diefenbaker won that landslide majority, um, and that was also, of course, the period where you already talked about the two ministers coming into the, into the government. What impact did that huge victory for the progressive conservatives have on the other political parties in the country? A major impact. First off, the Social Credit Party disappeared. And, and in effect, the conservatives had absorbed that base because social credit did have significant support in Alberta and British Columbia. And back in the 30s, they'd elected a couple of uh, people in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, for the liberals, it meant the end of 22 years of uninterrupted rule. It meant the end of, uh, of, of Saint Laurent's reign, although he, um, reign is too strong a word of his governing. He, although he was uh, he was older, he was 75 and had mused about retiring before, the Liberals thought that he was their major asset. They built their 1953 and 57 campaigns around him. But with the results in 1957, he, he was completely overshadowed. John Meisel, the uh, political scientist, refers to Ethan Baker's electrifying uh, at presence. And the Globe and Mail reported on the size of crowds showing up at uh, leaders' uh, rallies. And the Diefenbaker crowds were huge. You know, in Winnipeg, people were standing outside of the Winnipeg Auditorium in below zero temperatures. In uh, uh, Vancouver, uh, the crowds for Saint Laurent weren't much larger than they were in 1957 than they were for uh, Solon Lowe, the liberal leader. And for 
uh, for Diefenbaker, they were two to three times that size. At rallies, people were cheering Diefenbaker. At some liberal rallies, people were heckling Saint Laurent. So with the end of Saint Laurent, we got Lester Pearson. Well, then the liberals, uh, that, you know, Diefenbaker was very shrewd. He ended up uh, engineering an election. He had an election called, even though he hadn't lost Parliament's confidence. Uh, and um, he knew how to defeat Pearson. And Pearson um, was highly thought of in liberal circles. He, he had won the Nobel Prize. He had twice turned down offers to become the, um, uh, the Secretary General of NATO. He had been president of the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, but uh, foreign policy doesn't drive domestic elections. And Riefenbaker easily outfoxed uh, uh, at Pearson. And, and the media contributed. I'll give you an example. After the, uh, uh, Pearson became the leader in 1958, uh, in his first speech, which is a response to the speech from the throne, uh, Pearson said the government should be pursuing small L liberal programs because the liberals had been very successful with them. Well, the media turned in, that into, oh, Pearson is calling for the uh, Diefenbaker government that just got elected to resign and turn the governing back over to the liberals who think they have the, you know, a divine right to govern this country. And on the hustings, Diefenbaker attracted crowds. Pearson struggled, and Pearson recognized it. One, on one occasion, both of them were holding rallies in Moncton, New Brunswick. That day, the circus was also in town. What does Pearson write in his memoirs? The next day, the Moncton Telegram uh, describes the events going on in their city the night before. And they score it as follows. The circus, number one. Diefenbaker, number two. Pearson, number three. And that was the reality. Is there any other event that you can think of beyond the 1958 election that uh, stands out in terms of the 1950s? Or is that the most remarkable event of the 1950s? Uh, clearly, that was the most remarkable political event. I, I mean, you could argue it was 57 because it finally brought the conservatives to power. And I should point out they came to power with fewer votes than the liberals, which, you know, makes you think of the last feder last two federal elections we've had where the liberals have hung on to power with fewer votes than the conservatives. So that got turned around. The conservatives squandered a splendid opportunity to capitalize on, the, on on what they accomplished in Quebec in 1958. In 1957, they completely ignored Quebec, and they managed to win government, albeit a minority, by ignoring Quebec. Despite that, their seats in Quebec went from five to nine, because Quebecers could smell what was going on in the rest of the country. After that election, people in Quebec were flocking to try to become conservative candidates. And in 1958, although uh, Diefenbaker's French was torturous and not very good, he uh, they ended up winning 50 out of 75 seats. Within a few short years, that was squandered. And that's a tragedy for the Conservative Party because there is a strong conservative 
base in Quebec, as we just saw in the provincial election with the re-election of the CAC and the rise of a conservative party in Quebec, which got virtually as many votes as the Liberal Party of Quebec. Right. Well, Nelson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book. Thank you. My guest today was Nelson Wiseman, the author of 1950s Canada, Politics and Public Affairs, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. I would like to also thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This particular podcast on Canadian political history was sponsored by Don Bourgeois and Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 4th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. <laughs>